LegalizeFreedom.com Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? From the nature of reality to the future of humanity. Beyond politics, poverty and war. LegalizeFreedom.com Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com. I'm your host, Greg Moffat, and my guest today is Dean Raiden, who joins us to discuss his book, Real Magic, Ancient Wisdom, Modern Science, and a Guide to the Secret Power of the Universe. The principles that form the scientific materialist worldview assert that everything can be understood like the gears of a clock, and that events unfold forward in time in a strictly orderly fashion. They tell us that everything can be described with real properties that exist in ordinary space and time and that everything, including mind and consciousness, consists of matter and energy. It makes no sense to call anything spiritual, non-physical or immaterial. We are told that everything is made up of a hierarchy of ever smaller objects with subatomic particles at the bottom. However, according to the author, who has spent the last 40 years conducting controlled experiments exploring psychic phenomena, the scientific materialist worldview is woefully incomplete and furthermore, scientific evidence for a reality beyond this worldview exists. The picture that is emerging is of a reality where the entire universe is interconnected and where there is only one consciousness, which is fundamental and which underlies everything, including the everyday materialist world that so many of us take to be all that there is. Hello and welcome, Dean, and thank you so much for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. I'm happy to be here. Okay, Dean, today we're going to be discussing uh, your latest book. Uh, It's entitled Real Magic, Ancient Wisdom, Modern Science, and a Guide to the Secret Power of the Universe. Before we get into that, uh, just for listeners who don't know, give them a little bit of information about your background and your work in general. Well, uh, my educational background uh, is electrical engineering. Uh, both a undergraduate and graduate degrees. And then I went on to get a doctorate in experimental psychology and for about 10 years worked in industrial research, first at Bell Laboratories and then many years later in Silicon Valley. And I've also worked in the academic world at Princeton University and the University of Edinburgh. Uh, much of my initial training and early Uh, scientific work was in traditional areas, most of which was human-computer interaction. Uh, But I've always been interested in the nature of consciousness and in the capacities of consciousness. So I was dabbling in things like parapsychology, even as a teenager, and I, I didn't see that it was possible to actually have a job as a scientist in that area, so I didn't pay much attention to it. 
until I started doing experiments when I was at Bell Laboratories because uh, we had enough free time at work so we could basically do anything we wanted to do. And I started to get interesting results which were similar to what I've been reading about in the literature. So that piqued my curiosity. And after doing that for a couple of years and going to conferences and talking about it, about what I was seeing, I was recruited for, at the time, a secret U.S. government program, which now is known as Stargate, but that was just one of many code words that they had used. And in that program, I, I had the opportunity to see uh, expert remote viewers, people who had natural talents and clairvoyance, uh, do both experiments and operational missions, which convinced me that this is not just small anomalies that show up in the laboratory occasionally, but at talented levels, these these abilities are useful and, and quite remarkable. So being in a classified environment at the time, it was quite strange because within the building where we were working, there's no question that psychic phenomena were quite real and useful. Outside the building, at least from a scientific perspective, these phenomena didn't even exist. And so I just thought that was so strange. And I I decided then, at that time, this was now 1985, that if it was possible to continue working as a scientist to look at psychic phenomena in a, in a serious way, that I would try to do that. So from about that time until the present day, uh, almost all of my uh, working life has been involved in the science of examining psychic phenomena. In the last 18 years at the Institute of Noetic Sciences, which is in, which is near San Francisco, uh, and we're devoted to this notion. How do you use science to study things like psychic and mystical experience? Now, in my recorded introduction, I've set out the synopsis of your new book, uh, so we can take that for granted. I remember speaking a few years ago with um, Amit Goswami when he brought out his then current book, God is Not Dead. And after the fact, he said he'd regretted using the word God in the title. He very deliberately used it at first, but did regret it later. Now, it seems that you using the word magic at the title of your book is very deliberate and not something you're likely to come to regret later. Well, it, it was a very deliberate word. I chose it right from the very beginning. And it came about because after working in parapsychology for many years, uh, I, of course, had read lots of the esoteric literature. And there was a little bit of a, a dissociation going on because uh, it, parapsychology is such a controversial field that uh, you want to present an image of being very conventional scientist. And in fact, the methods that we use are completely mainstream. They're just applied to unusual human experiences. So from that perspective, I'm a scientist. I'm doing what scientists do. I'm using all the same tools and techniques and publishing and so on. The topic is a little bit unusual. But I, I happened to notice something when a, a book came out called The Handbook of Parapsychology for the 21st Century. And this is an update of one that was written in the 1970s, and it's a big fat book that contains what amounts to the state of the field. What, what do we think we understand now from a scientific perspective about psychic phenomena? 
And in looking through that book, I, of course, recognized what everyone was saying because I've been reading the same material for many years. But I noticed that the word magic was not in the index. And it wasn't mentioned anywhere except for in, in one paragraph talking about anthropology, because that's where you, you see the ideas about magic a lot in anthropology. And I thought that was quite strange, because from the esoteric perspective, uh, there's really no difference between magic and what we currently call psychic phenomena. And I realized at that point that the reason why the word is avoided is because it doesn't sound serious. It doesn't sound scientific. And so part of the point of writing this book on real magic was to examine why have the these esoteric concepts uh, been ignored by science? Why has it more or less been ignored by parapsychology, which is quite even stranger? And what does it mean to have knowledge that is esoteric? So that's that was kind of the initial questions I was asking myself, and that's what then turned into the book. Well, that kind of cuts to the the heart of a lot of the reading that I do, a lot, a lot of the work that I do, which is in this sort of overlap, Venn diagram type overlap between science and what we could loosely bracket as spirituality. And as you've described how your rigorous scientific approach to these things, and in many ways a conventional scientific approach to these things, is for you and some other scientists and researchers, it, it points them in certain directions or uh, highlights certain um, juxtapositions and correspondences for some people that they find somewhat uncomfortable. And what I like particularly about well your approach to this work in general, but about the new book, is that you don't shy away from any of this, any of these uh, correspondences. I, I think are essentially just pointing to one common source that, you know, what would have been called paranormal or supernatural at one time are simply not yet understood by uh, science or maybe cannot be understood by science, but it doesn't mean that they don't occur, that they don't exist. Because another dimension mm -hmm. of this is the sort of the limits of science. You know, it's kind of the art of the measurable. Science isn't everything. It's not nothing. <laughs> it's just a very effective way of learning about the world around us in certain ways. No, science rests upon uh, certain assumptions, the scientific materialism. So uh, that as a method of discovery is incredibly powerful. It allows us to do this interview, right? We're in uh, almost opposite ends of the planet, and yet we have a free connection over a thing that somebody, actually a whole bunch of people invented. So technology based on materialism is so powerful that in a sense it creates blinders for many people, not just scientists, but even for the general population. It creates blinders that suggest that that is really the only way of understanding reality. And from that perspective, it's the reason why things like psychic phenomena or mystical experiences are seen as so strange that they probably aren't even real, that they're delusional or coincidence or lots of other mundane explanations. But it's only because from a materialistic perspective, we start getting a, we gain a picture of reality. But you're absolutely right that science does not give the entire picture. It gives a certain scope of the picture, but it also leaves out a lot. And in particular, it leaves out the, the whole notion of what a philosopher might call qualia, 
this internal sense of self-awareness. So science doesn't know what to do with that at all. It doesn't fit into a materialistic perspective. And as a result, the, the, the closest that we get to it from a scientific perspective is through studies of psychology and neuroscience. The studies of psychology are kind of close. Uh, neuroscience is not that close at all. What you see with, with uh, brain correlations are exactly that. Correlations between what's going on in cognition and what's going on inside the brain, but that doesn't say anything about the causal direction. It doesn't tell us what consciousness actually is. In terms of thinking about people, you know, changing perspectives and new information being uh, integrated by the mainstream or the establishment, early on in your book, you cite the strange case of Michael Shermer. So perhaps you'd like to just explain that little uh, interlude in the book. Okay. So the opening chapter is talking about uh, how common phenomena are that could be considered magical. And I, it's true that you mentioned earlier that I'm using the word magic basically as a placeholder for something that we don't have a better name for yet. And if you go back far enough in history, everything was considered magic or supernatural that because we didn't have good explanations for anything. And we're still in that position today where there are things that happen that seem magical. They seem to happen by themselves in ways that we don't understand. So the example with uh, Michael Shermer, who's a well-known skeptic about all things paranormal, uh, he wrote in his column in Scientific American, which was already quite strange, about an experience that he had when he was getting married and his wife had a, a transistor, an old-style transistor radio that her, was for, from her grandfather who had passed away. And she was feeling sad because her grandfather couldn't attend the funeral. And the, the uh, transistor radio was, in, was just put into a drawer in their bedroom. And they, at one point, uh, I, I don't remember whether it's before or after the ceremony, but they heard music coming from the house. So they traced it down to that radio, which was playing in the drawer in their bedroom. And they had no idea why it was working, because earlier, uh, Michael had been trying to make the, the uh, radio work and was uh, fiddling with the batteries and the switches and uh, smashing it a little bit to see if he could knock something loose, and nothing he could do would make it work. So they set it aside as basically a dead radio. But here it was playing music and playing a song that was meaningful in some way to to the uh, the wedding. So his wife, uh, his new wife at that time, said, uh, "Well, it's it's my grandfather. He's he's playing the music through his favorite radio, saying that he's here. He's here with us." So as you can imagine, the synchronicity of all this was really striking. To Michael Shermer, and so he wrote about it in his column, saying that maybe we're, we should be open to these kinds of things because we don't have everything wrapped up already. So a couple of years goes by, and he writes another column in the Scientific American where he basically says that the paranormal isn't true at all, and we don't have to pay any attention to it, and so don't just don't pay attention to it. And so what I'm I'm pondering then in that chapter, the opening chapter is that strange things happen to people all the time. Some people simply cannot accept them. 
And so a variety of different responses occur. One is that they completely forget that anything happened at all. Another is that they deny that it ever happened. Somebody says, well, you, you, you said you did such and such. And I say, no, I don't. I never said that. Uh, and the third one is that they get a little bit angry even at themselves. And then they actively denied, well, maybe I said that happened, but it's not really true. And it's because of the, the, where you start in terms of your initial belief structure. If your belief structure is completely shocked by some event, some magical or paranormal event, if it's so shocking that it begins to deconstruct your, your constellation of beliefs, you have to deal with what, how do you now put your beliefs back together again? Well, they could collapse back into the way they were before, in which case now you have to deny that the magic happened because within your old belief system, it simply couldn't. And so you reconstruct that. And in Michael's case, he's the well-known editor of a skeptics magazine. And it'd be very difficult for him, to, I think. And of course, I don't, I'm not going to put, I'm not going to imagine that I know exactly what happened here, but I can, I can guess that as the prominent head of a skeptics organization, it would not be good for him to be too positive about paranormal events, even in his own experience. And so he would reconstruct his belief system in such a way that he would just totally forget or, or deny that that was meaningful, that initial experience. Whereas if you start from a position where you're somewhat open to strange things happening, then then your belief system is not significantly challenged and you come through such an event uh, and use it as an interesting story to tell other people and it doesn't significantly change you. Yes, well, as often as I've read about cases of people having life-changing experiences with paranormal events, um, UFO encounters, near-death experiences, and on and on, there's this very significant number that when you read about it, what happened to them, even sometimes in their own words, you say, oh, there's no way back from that. You know, you've just gone into a new reality and, you know, your whole worldview has expanded. But I've just read so many times of people who have retreated um, for all sorts of reasons, some of which you just um, highlighted. It seems it's remarkably common. And I've talked to a lot of people who've, uh, you know, who've dealt one-on-one and, you know, and counseled people who've had uh, near-death experiences just to use one example that's often cited as, as life-changing yeah if you're uh, if you have a transformative experience the whether it sticks or not whether it actually changes your personality depends on your how strongly held together your prior beliefs were and so i i think in the case of, of michael Shermer is interesting because as he's written about he started out as a fundamentalist christian so he had a pretty that's a pretty rigid belief system it it uh, is self-contained in a sense. You know, it's it, it's something that you hold tightly. Uh, it causes you to reject certain aspects of science, and to and and it's sustained by staying within the flock, so to speak. Uh, so if it takes a lot to force you to break out of that, and in his case, like I've heard from a lot of young people who are raised in fundamentalist uh, religions that they learn as teenagers when they start going to school that some of the things they were taught are just not true. And so they get quite angry and they they reject 
they they take this previous belief structure completely squish it and gain something else well the thing that they're going to gain is a very strong idea about materialism and because they had grown up with the idea of holding tight onto a given set of beliefs they just substitute a religious beliefs for one of materialism which they hold on to as a kind of religion i mean that that's what the term scientism is meant to convey that you can grab onto science as we currently know it today as a new kind of religion and if anything challenges that you get the same response as as if you were attacking somebody's religion they generally don't like that very much so this is certainly not true of all skeptics uh, but in some of them, some of the cases where you find people who are just absolutely completely dead set skeptics and have never changed uh, from their initial positions, regardless of the nature of the evidence, that something like that must be going on. Yes, I spoke to a group of skeptics once. It was just like, you know, a social gathering. And it, kind of the impression I got at the end of it was that, I mean, skepticism is good. We should be skeptical. We should have that quality, you know, in our thinking. And it should Absolutely. be, it should be triggered at times, you know, by, we say, well, hang on a minute here, you know. But the impression I got on that particular occasion was that there, that they existed merely as some kind of almost like book burning sort of, you know, inquisition type debunking group that would get, right. that moved from town to town, sort of, you know, uh, torturing heretics or whatever, you know, as opposed to considering subjects, considering issues, uh, and then bringing a, you know, a, a rational, cool, detached, objective consideration of it to bear. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it takes a certain tolerance of ambiguity, certain degree of openness to new ideas, uh, without feeling that it's personally attacking you. Uh, and one hopes that that is true among most scientists. A lot of scientists go into whatever field they're interested in because of curiosity. And that usually means that you're open to new ideas and have some tolerance of ambiguity. And probably among scientists as a whole, there there's more uh, openness. Uh, although I can't say that I've ever seen any data on this. So I'm not, this is based on my anecdotal experience about other scientists. But I have certainly met academics uh, across the board, uh, many of whom so completely reject the possibility of psychic phenomena that they literally will say that I'm not going to pay any attention to the data because the data cannot be correct. And therefore, any data that is presented has to be either fraudulent or flawed in some important way. Uh, we get this, we see basically this kind of response when we submit an article to a journal, and it's immediately rejected because the editor says, well, this this isn't even science. So th th that prejudice certainly does exist uh, among some in the academic world. There's also this idea that psi phenomena somehow defy the laws of physics, you know, that go counter to the, the rules of science and therefore cannot be possible for this reason. But not only, as we've discussed, is, are these kind of laws they don't govern everything uh in the entirety of re of reality that many of these as you found you know th through your work and research you know many of these things that you're exploring scientifically fit in perfectly well with scientific principles it's just that they're they're not understood or you know they're not looked at or scrutinized openly it's true that in the 1950s there were 
arguments uh, proposed. This actually goes even farther back than that, but I remember specifically in, in the 50s there were arguments by philosophers that psychic phenomena were, were impossible because they violated basic scientific understanding of the world. And so they, they would say things like, uh, well, these phenomena are somehow violating the speed of light because they, they don't seem to be operating within space and time. And they're a-causal, they don't seem to have any obvious physical cause, and so on. Things like that that we would take as scientific truths. And so uh, that idea is not only um, pronounced by, by philosophers, but you also see it among psychologists and occasionally physicists, even today, who will say that any evidence for psychic phenomena is mistaken because the phenomena are impossible, because they don't match what we understand about the physical world. This is even said occasionally by people who know a lot about modern physics and know that the naive classical physical way of understanding reality is basically incomplete. We know that quantum mechanics and relativity are better and more accurate descriptions of the physical world and within both of those domains, you have very strange uh, um, phenomena about the nature of space and time that, and causality, and even the notion of what reality means than you have in classical physics. And yet they still say that obviously you can't have something like an experience uh, between two people that, that seems to transcend space and time even though they could be studying that every day in the laboratory in physics. So scientists strive to be rational, but we're also people, and then sometimes uh, our emotions override rationality. Yes, well, there, there has been, you know, in popular publications, some deliberate misinterpretation of findings of quantum physics, shall we say, and there's also been some accidental, you know, inadvertent misinterpretation. That being said, I feel that coming as someone who's not a scientist, but who's read a lot um, around this, that I still feel that a lot of the, a lot of what has come out in the last century of quantum physics has not been integrated, uh, never mind into wider society, but not into, you know, science itself. Uh, when I say integra not integrated, I mean, not, not known, or even some cases understood, but then kind of set aside and not factored in in a way that you would think was it, should, it was absolutely essential that it should be. I mean, I remember doing physics at school in the 1980s, um, only for two years. Uh, you know, I didn't pursue it, but I remember the basic grounding that we got in, in various you know areas of it. And at no point was quantum physics even mentioned. Now, Einstein's name came up, of course. But I would have thought by the 1980s that, it, you know, given how fast things were moving, that this at least would have been a module, but it wasn't. And there was nothing about it in our textbooks either. Yeah. Well, it again, this is uh, uh, quantum physics concepts are so challenging that and so counterintuitive from, from a, a naive perspective, perspective of reality that it's not too surprising that it it is only now slowly beginning to penetrate into the popular culture and it is true that the 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 word quantum has become a new kind of magic word so you, you can buy quantum toothpaste and quantum paint and quantum shampoo and all kinds of things because it conveys a notion of exotic and magical and so 
some physicists will then say, well, it's this is a when you're talking about psychic phenomena and quantum mechanics in the same breath, it's completely illegitimate. They have nothing to do with each other. To which I would respond, knowing something about quantum mechanics, that uh, don't look at my hand. Look where what I'm where what where I'm pointing. In other words, there there uh, quantum mechanics makes certain interpretations about the nature of reality. The most important being that there are connections that transcend space and time, that are meaningful. Things like quantum entanglement. These are actual connections that we don't understand yet, but they clearly are not in space time. They're somehow outside of space time. Well, is that relevant then to human experiences, which also are considered strange because they're not in space time? So telepathy from one person to to another who's on the other side of the planet somehow not operating in normal space. And somebody who has a precognition is not operating in normal time. It's somehow outside of it. So you can you can draw a whole set of parallels between the implications of quantum mechanics in terms of our understanding of reality and the actual experiences that people have and have had throughout history, suggesting that there's some interesting overlap here between our best scientific understanding of reality and the nature of human experience, which reflects it in a very strong way. So quantum mechanics is not the end of physics. There are lots of people at the leading edge now are trying to figure out what's next, what's underneath quantum mechanics. And the, the early signs are, as we see in quantum biology now, that living systems uh, seem to rely on quantum phenomena. Maybe it's even necessary to have quantum phenomena working within living systems, otherwise they wouldn't be living. If that is the case, and that line of research continues, as I think it will, and it is eventually seen at some point that quantum phenomena are actually active in the brain, the human brain, which I think will happen as well, then we, we suddenly find a very strong link between our best scientific understanding of the nature of physical reality, including how it works in the brain, and the whole range of psychic and mystical experience. Because now suddenly you have a way of understanding from a physical perspective, although not physical or material in the way we thought of 100 years ago, in a quite new way, that your brain is mostly inside your head, but there are aspects of it that are also permeating the rest of the universe. And so from that perspective, the idea that you can be in telepathic rapport with somebody who's on the other side of the planet is no longer impossible. In fact, it it finesses that completely and suddenly is not only possible, but you'd start to predict that sometimes people should have experiences where they're getting information or feeling as though they are at actually not located where their body is located, but somewhere else. And so the whole the whole book of psychic phenomena and magic suddenly will be viewed in a very different way because now we would have uh, scientific ways of thinking about these same phenomena. So I, I predict that we're going to see this kind of this direction uh, start to be more and more viable within the next 20 years or so. Thinking about this in relation to some of the things you touch upon in the new book, do you see a connection with this kind of suppression of esoteric ideas over the centuries, connection with the understandings contained within the hermetic tradition, 
uh, what likes to be called the perennial philosophy. Do you, do you see correspondences there? Well, the perennial philosophy, which is a synthesis of all of the esoteric traditions, uh, from a philosophical point of view, would be called idealism, where, which is the counter to materialism. It's the notion that in materialism, everything is made out of matter, including the mind. <clears throat> the flip side in idealism is everything is made out of mind, including matter. So the the uh, esoteric traditions are idealism. It assumes that consciousness is fundamental and that everything, including physics, emerges out of consciousness in some way. You see this uh, in various degrees of clarity in all of the esoteric traditions, but to just give one example, in the Kabbalah, the, the Book of Creation is one of the books, and it says very clearly that cre that the world as we know it, reality, was created out of a set of 32, uh, 32 characters. Uh, 22 are letters and 10 are numbers. And so it's some creative force puts together these letters and numbers in a certain way, and that creates the physical world. That, that's the, the essence of how, at least within the Kabbalistic tradition, the understanding of how you start with something which is not com not physical at all, it's consciousness in some primordial form, that symbolically creates the universe. And so we, from that perspective, and most of the esoteric traditions, we live in a symbolic universe. It's created by symbols. So this sounds... Uh, medieval at this point. We don't generally think of it in these terms, except as I point out in my book, Real Magic, if you look at the leading edge today in physics, in quantum mechanics, in neuroscience, and in, and in mathematics, you find more and more mainstream thought leaders talking about reality at, built out of information, or built out of mathematics, or built out of symbols. And this essentially is the esoteric tradition. It's bringing these old ideas up to date with new language and new ways of thinking about it, but the basic concepts are the same. It's saying that reality is not fundamentally based on matter and energy. It's based on, for want of a better term, information, or, or perhaps uh, semiotics, signs and symbols. Well, that's very, very close to the basic uh, notions of why magic worked in the first place. I mean, that, that's essentially why when you look at a, a grimoire, a book of spells, the idea was that if you say these particular words in a given sequence, whether they happen to be in English or some other language, that the words are symbols. And so the, saying the words in certain sequences with the right state of mind you are literally changing the nature of reality by virtue of the symbols themselves. So from a science perspective, that sounds crazy, except as I said, from a leading edge in most of the sciences today, especially the hard sciences, something like that is where people are going. Reflecting what you just said, if a lot of the understandings that the cutting edge seem to be coming to feel like the rediscoveries in a way or, you know, recapitulations of something that was seems to have been understood a very long time ago, maybe understood differently, I don't know. I wonder if the arc that we've been on in the last couple of thousand years coming through what loosely gets called the Dark Ages and then 
you know, through the, to the scientific, the modern scientific era, if that was some kind of cul-de-sac that we went down that was a mistake or whether that was a necessary developmental curve as well, that, that we gone through that for a reason. I'm not sure I believe in fate. Uh, so if you don't believe in fate, then it's not as though we actually have something that's guiding us. There's, uh, if anything, it's like evolution where we're striving to become, uh, I mean, in a, a very crass way, we're figuring out ways of becoming safer, of reducing uncertainty. And one of the ways of doing that is trying to understand the nature of the world around us. Like, why is this person getting sick? Well, a couple hundred years later, you figure out things like germs and antibiotics and so on. So a lot of it is driven by pragmatics that you we want to become safer and safer and live longer and happier and all the rest. That's what everyone wants. And in order to do that, that any time there's something that challenges that, well, people will get together and say, well, why? What's happening there? Let's figure that out. And in the process, we gain new knowledge. So the if, if you look at the thousands of thousand years or so of the uh, initially the Holy Roman Church, which was neither holy nor, nor Roman, if you look at the influence of the church, especially in, in Europe, it held for a long time, partially because there weren't that many people around, but also there were very few people who were educated. Uh, that finally was broken in the Enlightenment, and it allowed people who were interested in understanding suffering, essentially, to look at it in a new way and use the, the, the new method of empiricism and science. Well, that helped pull us out of a long period of suffering into one which is less suffering. And one hopes that that arc continues, that we will continue to do that. And we're always being held back by politics of power and all the rest of it. You see that even today in the way the politics works. It's, it holds us back from what is, at least from my perspective, very obvious directions that we should be going. But then people come along who, for one reason or another, uh, get into positions of power, and they just they don't think that way. They're thinking in a regressive way. So, so this is simply dealing with the nature of, of humans and our differences, and some are perhaps more aware of what leads to uh, to the benefit of all and others are less aware of that and these are these are the breaks that slow down evolution I suppose touching upon the mechanics of all this the mind sort of matter interface and, and what in your book you're referring to as magic I, I always felt that there was and again this was nothing not coming from a religious perspective but I always felt that there was um, a non-material dimension to reality that interacted with the physical one of our five senses. That's how it always seemed to me. I sort of sensed it without having any actual proof of it that I could show to anybody. And the intuition seems to have been correct. And most of us, I think, have that to a greater or lesser extent. Uh, some of us ignore it. Some of us explore it. Some of us misunderstand it. In talking about science in particular, you know, it's been mentioned that, you know, scientists are humans as well, and that whether we like it or not, whether we believe it or not, we're influencing our reality around us in some way via our minds, that there there is an interaction going on with it, with a deeper field of reality. And, and I'm thinking specifically of scientists having an effect on their um, experiments. Uh, this echoes the observer effect, you know, the classic experiment in quantum physics and one delicious 
incident that uh, you touch upon in the book and that I'd read about back at the time when it happened. This was the discovery at CERN of the Higgs boson. Mm. And I read an article and, uh, and it's subsequently more than one, but there was one that came out initially. And it was, yeah, yeah, they, you know, they finally discovered what they were looking for. And the, the person who wrote this article, I can't remember who it was now, was saying, did they bring this into being? Because their focus, this huge collective material and mental focus on quote unquote finding this thing, which by the way, doesn't exist in any meaningful way in, in a materialist sense, that doesn't seem to. So I, I loved that idea that there's this concentrated focus on discovering something that had been implied theoretically and then up it popped right so when it comes to something like the higgs boson i would say that in principle yes it is possible that a large group of people who are highly motivated and intensely focused on making something happen can make it happen in that case it took trillions upon trillions of samples for to find a, a five sigma result that's statistical terms, the odds against chance of about a, a hundred thousand to one. And in physics, a five sigma result is generally taken as a discovery. That's why CERN got the Nobel Prize for discovering the Higgs boson. And yet, if you look in psi research, you can find instances of five sigma results looking at mind matter interaction studies. Well, those aren't considered discoveries, at least not in the mainstream, because unlike at CERN, there you had very sophisticated mathematical models that were predicting like something like the Higgs boson ought to exist. So in cyber research, we don't have mathematical models that allow us to predict hardly anything. We just have the empirical data. But if you kind of strip out the, the theoretical side and you simply say, well, what, uh, what, what do you see when you actually do an experiment? That some of the data in parapsychology is actually quite similar to what you see at CERN. Uh, they're usually not even thought about in the same paragraph because it seems ridiculous to take our leading edge of physics today and compare it to psychic phenomena. But on the other hand, just from a purely empirical perspective, that is in fact what's going on. And so we're trying to develop theories with the same level of rigor as we have in physics that would explain why there's something about the interaction between mind and matter. And this is this has always been a difficult problem because th there's disciplines that deal with the mind and disciplines that deal with physics. The only discipline that deals with the interaction between the two directly is parapsychology. And there's never been more than about 100 people at any given time who are scientists who are, are looking at that space in between mind and matter. So there's just not enough resources and people to figure out this not only complex problem, but hyper-complex problem. Well, actually, you, something you touched upon there is really important. You mentioned statistical likelihood of something or statistic, statistical odds against an outcome or whatever. This is something you, that your book's very good on. For people who find number crunching and statistics a bit boring, like myself, if somebody starts to show me a spreadsheet or talk about numbers, I just glaze over but mm -hmm. I think there's a lot of misunderstanding amongst non-scientists and lay people about what a result shows in terms of like, this is now statistically significant. And I think a lot of it can sound very marginal, but it is very significant. And I've read about this before, but when I read your book, I was reminded again, actually, that sometimes if you read 
if you're not familiar with the subject and you read information about experimental results, you can just say, oh, well, that's nothing. But actually, it, it can be a hell of a lot. Yeah, there's there's a confusion between the size of an effect and its statistical significance. So the size of effect for uh, things like um, pharmaceuticals and the charge on the electron and lots and lots of things, the actual magnitude of the effect is really tiny. But you could have very high confidence that even though it's very tiny, it's quite real. And so you, you gain that confidence through lots and lots of re repeated measurements, and then you have to use statistics in order to assess whether those measurements are, did they give you confidence or not. Well, so this is what's done in a lot of psychology experiments and medical experiments, no different than we do in parapsychology. And so we can gain very high confidence that something is real, even though the actual magnitude of the effect is pretty small. Well, Dane, a couple of closing thoughts. Um, towards the end of your book, I really liked the iceberg diagram, uh, which I'll call it, uh, to do with consciousness and physics, mind and matter being separate. And in your diagram, you can describe it in a second. When you go below the surface, you find that they are part of one and the same, uh, but they sort of, uh, they diverge. And at the point that we are aware of them, they appear separate. Yeah, this is a metaphor that has been used many times, all the way back to William James and even before then. The idea is that you're, you're looking out over the ocean and you see two islands out there. And so you have obviously make the assumption that, well, they're independent of each other, have nothing to do with each other, just two separate islands. You dive under the water, you can see that actually there are two peaks of a mountain of which uh, the, most of the mountain is under the water. So you're only seeing the two peaks and made the assumption that they're separate, but they're actually part of the same structure. Uh, there are many variations on this, including things like seeing a cresting of a wave. So you can see to your left, there's a wave cresting, and to the right, there's a wave cresting, and they're not connected, obviously. They're different wave structures, and yet, of course, they're all part of the same ocean that has different, different movements in it. So the idea here is that there are some aspects of reality that appear to be separate, but if you look at a, a below the surface, at a deeper level, they're not separate. They're part of the same thing. This is essentially what quantum entanglement is all about. So quantum entanglement shows that, that both energy and matter at elementary levels, we're talking about photons, things like that, but also larger structures now, uh, appear to be separate. They look like separate little particles. But if you look at it in, in more detail and in, in the right way, you see that they're actually not separate after all. And so this is interesting from a scientific perspective, of course, but it's also interesting in that it has this very strong parallel in the esoteric literature. In the esoteric literature, you see again and again the notion that separation is an illusion, that we are all interconnected in ways that transcend space and time, uh, which doesn't make common sense, that your senses don't show you that, but it makes uncommon sense. Things like telepathy seem to reflect that, that we're not really as separate as we think we are. And in a sense that that's almost in a, as, uh, in a nutshell, the strangeness of psychic phenomena that these experiences tell us that we're not quite as separate from each other as we think, and we're not as separate from the environment as we think. 
And the connections we're talking about are not like radio. It's not electromagnetic signals. It's more like something much more fundamental than that. It, it transcends our ordinary notions of space and time. That essentially is also the reason why traditional esoteric magic was said to work. Well, in the book, you talk in one section about what you call Merlin level magicians. And I think that the uh, phenomena that you study and that you've written about uh, once again in the book are manifestations of basically an inherent human ability. I think development development of them should form part of our evolution, is forming part of our evolution. If we could learn to direct this power, I think, well, who knows where that might lead, but that's, if I was a scientist <laughs> and if I was working on anything, that's what it would be. Uh, and as I point out in the book also, there's both positive and negative uh, aspects to imagining that we develop a pill someday that can make somebody a super psychic. Mm -hmm. So the positive side is that uh, we probably will be able to do things like healing much better. Uh, we'll be able to make decisions much better, probably advance the, the general state of health and wealth around the world much faster and better. But you'll also have the opportunity of destroying the world a lot faster. So we may not be in our present state sufficiently evolved, uh, even from an emotional point of view, to, uh, to allow ourselves to have this kind of power. It's a little like uh, uh, giving a, a baby the button to an atomic bomb. They, they have incredible power, but they don't know yet how to use it wisely. So I think, yes, that, that the, we do have these abilities. Some people can be trained and not everyone because it probably takes a certain degree of talent in order to be any good at it. Uh, but pushing it too far too fast before we actually understand what we're dealing with, I think actually could be dangerous. Absolutely. And in what you just said, you, you find echoes of all the warnings down the ages of, about magical powers, about, you know, caution and about, right. you know, being care, you know, being guard your thoughts and be careful what you wish for and all these other things. So that's fascinating. Well, just in closing, as you wrap up your book, there's two little sections that answer uh, and pose some uh, interesting questions going forward about where we are now, where we're going. And it was basically the, the why can't I create my own reality? Uh, mm -hmm. which overlaps with a lot of, you know, pop thinking about, uh, you know, the, the secret and uh, positive thinking, et cetera, et cetera. And also one called the future of magic. So maybe you could use the, that as a, just a springing off point to, to give us a, you know, a closing thought. Well, so why uh, the, the whole genre of affirmations says that uh, you wish for something and reality will give it to you. That's about creating your own reality. And at some level, that is correct. That's what our, our data says. Yeah, you, you do have the ability for your attention and intention to manipulate the physical world. Uh, but you're not the only person in the universe. So every time you have an intention to manipulate reality a little bit, you have to contend with the other 7 billion humans and unknown trillions of other creatures out there who may or may not like what you are wishing. So there's a, a huge amount of inertia out there to, um, to to reduce the effectiveness of your own intentions. So you can affirm all day long, but if your affirmation is not compatible in some way with everyone else, it's not going to go very far. 
again, this doesn't say it's not real. It just says that there, everything that you do is in a context, and the context sometimes is compatible and sometimes it's not compatible. As far as, uh, I'll just mention one of the uh, future of, uh, of science. If we, if we do, given what we know at this point about uh, the nature of consciousness and what it can do, one of the topics that I bring up in at the, this last chapter where I'm speculating about future events is about the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. And so what we've been doing so far is using basically radio waves to, to see if anybody's sending us their TV stations or radio stations from, from other star systems. And as, as I tried to describe in the book, that that is such a primitive method that it's kind of the equivalent of why don't we just send smoke signals? And, and I mean, radio is, is such a, it's like the very first way that we came up with a hundred years ago of sending signals using electromagnetics. Well, if you think of a, another civilization out there that's intelligent in the way that we understand intelligence, but they're even a thousand years ahead of us, they certainly will have discovered, as we are discovering, that consciousness has very strange capacities, like it can perceive things through space and time. Well, they're not going to try to send a radio signal from, from something that may be 20 light years away because it takes 20 years for the signal to reach you, and by the time it reaches the Earth, it's so weak that we can just barely pick it up. Because, by comparison, they could jump through the 20 years, go outside of space-time, and directly interact with people through telepathy, for example, or clairvoyance. And, of course, there are plenty of people today who claim that they are talking to aliens telepathically, and they have other kinds of experiences suggesting that there's some kind of extraterrestrial uh, intelligence. These are usually dismissed as laughable, but... I would project then that uh, some people today might, in fact, through what we would call psychic phenomena, are interacting with intelligences that don't happen to be on this planet. Uh, again, from a, from a mainstream perspective, this sounds crazy, except it's not so crazy when you start looking at the nature, at least a little bit, that we know at this point about psychic phenomena, and now you project it a thousand years into the future, how much more we will understand and at that point, it won't look crazy at all. It'll probably be the way that we communicate. Well, yeah, if you get away from the laws of physics as purely governing the universe and all the materialistic ways of looking at interplanetary and interstellar travel and all the difficulties there, if you start thinking about different dimensions and about the universe being within mind, then suddenly all these other communication channels open up and it isn't about the impossibility of getting from here to the nearest star, uh, you know, using the propulsion technologies we've got. All of that, you know, just ceases to be relevant really, doesn't it? So. Yeah, and it's not about the, the laws of physics, I always add, as we know them today. Mm -hmm. Because you look at, at textbooks in physics just 20 years ago, like half of the book has changed. So we're not going to throw away things that we know that work. But our understanding, and all of the sciences, our understanding keeps becoming more comprehensive. And that means that things that we used to think were the, the whole story are now seen as special cases. That's what happens when you start expanding your, your knowledge base. That we used to think that physics was a certain way. That's the end of the story. Now we look back on classical physics and we say, no, that's a special case where you're not moving very fast and you're not dealing with the very small or the very large. Well, this 
kind of expansion will continue to happen. At some point, somebody's going to recognize that our current understanding of physics, as good as it is, is a special case of something even more comprehensive, which I would predict is going to involve consciousness in some way. And, and at that point, the all of the, the current uh, scientists who say, well, this psychic stuff is nonsense because it's impossible, they will be seen in retrospect as being completely wrong because they were assuming that uh, a, a special case and not realizing that we're that the special case is part of a much broader way of understanding reality. Dean, today we've been discussing your latest book. It's entitled Real Magic, Ancient Wisdom, Modern Science, and a Guide to the Secret Power of the Universe. That's available everywhere. Uh, perhaps you'd just like to throw out for listeners your website and anything else you'd like to share. Well, two websites. One is deanradin.org, which is my personal website, and I have lots of my own publications there and information about books and so on. Uh, and also uh, noetic.org, N-O-E-T-I-C.org, which is the institute where I've been working for the past 18 years, which is devoted to trying to use the tools and techniques of science, not trying to, but we are actually using the tools and techniques of science to understand better the nature of consciousness. And we have at the present time around 10 scientists on our staff, uh, all of whom are trained in uh, different disciplines. We pretty much cover most of the usual disciplines. Uh, so we're a multidisciplinary team doing uh, research on the cutting edge of consciousness. Splendid. Well, Dean, once again, thank you so much for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. It's my pleasure.